This week on Myths and Legends, it's the conclusion of the story of Pecos Bill, an American tall tale. Bill and Satan will go on an excellent adventure, and you'll see the only time in folklore or literature when making a deal with the devil actually worked out for all parties, and how running his own business got the devil to take a break from trying to get all those souls. The creature this week is yet another reason not to follow the naked stranger into the river, because then simply drowning will be the least of your worries. This is Myths and Legends, episode 136, To the Moon and Back. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously, in episode 75, we met Pecos Bill. He was a baby accidentally abandoned by his parents and raised by a pack of coyotes in Texas. This, of course, gifted him superpowers. Because reasons. And later he was discovered by his brother, Chuck. Soon, Bill, Chuck, and Chuck's business partners opened the Pinnacle Ranch, where long-lost Bill went on to invent helpful things, like lassoing cows from horseback, thus revolutionizing the industry. He also captured and broke the most dangerous horse in existence, which he named Widowmaker. Time passed, and then one day, a twister touched down in the distance. It was heading their way. Fortunately, Bill knew exactly what to do. He rode like he never rode before, jumped off Widowmaker's back, and lassoed the tornado. Pecos Bill was dead. I mean, he had to be, right? The guy rode a horse named Widowmaker up to a tornado yelled that he was going to lasso the force of nature, and then jumped in. On one hand, the guy literally thought he was a talking coyote, so you can't really blame him for not knowing that that wasn't remotely how tornadoes worked. Regardless, the men watched with open mouths as Bill dove into the tornado. Moments passed, but then a cheer rippled up through the crowd as the tornado veered off course toward the plains, completely missing their ranch. Moon Hennessy elbowed his friend, and made a bet with Gunsmith, another character, that Bill was surely dead. He winced quickly, remembering that Chuck, Bill's brother, was standing right next to him. With a nod, he consoled the man as best he could. You know, he really hoped he was wrong and all, but also kind of not, because six months of wages were on the line. Chuck would go out every morning, studying the wide horizon beyond their fences, waiting for Bill to return. But as three months passed, and then six, Chuck became less and less hopeful that his little brother, the one that had somehow survived being abandoned in the desert as a toddler, would make it back from his greatest feat. Still, he would never give up on Bill altogether. Bill's invention of the lasso and lassoing cows had revolutionized their industry, and the original partners would all be millionaires in a time when millionaires were like billionaires. The only issue? It didn't take the other ranches long to catch on to their new technique and their millions would only stay theirs if they sold. Moon Hennessy, Mushmouth, and everyone in their group were just itching to sell. But Chuck and Gunsmith stood in their way. They had founded this ranch as a group. Well, in addition to Satan, and they would sell it as a group. When Bill returned. Most nodded in resolve, but not Moon Hennessy. He made no effort to conceal his discontent, telling everyone always what he thought of Bill's chances of survival. I mean, he had lassoed a twister, 
It was mainly that you couldn't lasso air, but also mainly that Bill's fundamental misunderstanding of weather, physics, and like six other disciplines had obviously led to his death. It was at the bar in town that Moon Hennessy found a sympathetic ear. Moon, the bartender said with a dip of his chin. Already at the bar sat a stranger, his elbows resting on the counter. Bill, the bartender greeted, looking at the newcomer. What'll it be? The stranger laughed and looked to the right and left over his shoulders. Why was this bartender referring to him by that mistaken name, which was obviously a mistake? Pecos Bill, if the legends of his grandeur were to be believed, had fiery red hair. The stranger fluffed his black hair that definitely wasn't just a wig that he had bought on his walk here. The bartender shrugged and poured a drink for the stranger, who, despite looking, speaking, and carrying himself exactly like Pecos Bill, had different color hair than Pecos Bill, so he absolutely couldn't be Pecos Bill. The greenhorn tucked his red hair back under his wig and told Moon that he had found his way down to Texas from Missouri. And while he didn't know too much about this Pecos Bill fellow and his supposedly chiseled, coyote-like features, what he did know was that he wanted to work for Moon Hennessy, if Moon was the owner of the ranch down the road. Moon nodded. Yup. I mean, technically Pecos Bill was the leader, but seeing as he was just blind dead wherever the tornado dropped him, it was only a matter of time before Moon took over. He looked the stranger up and down and, with a sinister smile, welcomed him back to the ranch. Now, the guys on Bill's ranch had a little habit when it came to new recruits on the ranch. Namely, they hazed newcomers mercilessly to make them think they were under constant threat of death. Because what better way to get quality employees? So Moon Hennessy rode ahead of the stranger back to the ranch and told the guys to ready their guns for a little prank slash HR lawsuit involving inducing panic, shouting monster, and firing at the stranger's hat. And no, Moon Hennessy didn't know it was Bill under the wig. That might actually be better. This was just how they treated all new hires. The stranger stood there grinning as his hat flew from his head and the ranchers continued to shoot it full of holes. At last, Mushmouth lowered his pistol. Okay, guys, that's... that's Bill. The others shook their heads in unison. What was he talking about? How could that be Bill? Bill had red hair. This guy's was obviously black. Mushmouth, you idiot. The new hire, who took to being target practice from a whole team of ranchers remarkably in stride, thanked Moon and the others. With a smirk, for protecting him from the, you know, monster. Everyone nodded, and the group fell silent. Moon looked to Gunsmith. General Stonewall Jackson? Gunsmith nodded. Oh yeah, General Stonewall Jackson. General Stonewall Jackson was the oldest horse on the ranch. He was mean, he bit, bucked, and kicked anyone that came near it, and only had a slight edge on the Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. Because even though the horse was the worst, at least he wasn't fighting to defend slavery. With a snicker, Moon explained that all the greenhorns on the ranch had to prove themselves by riding a challenging horse by the name of General Stonewall Jackson. Never mind that it took four ranchers to drag him from his stall, and even more to attempt to put the saddle on him, before the new hire told them not to. He could ride General Stonewall Jackson bareback. Okay guys, seriously, he's gonna be able to do it, Mushmouth said, chiming in when he saw his fellow ranchers' sinister smiles thinking that they were going to pull one over on this guy. This is Bill. Come on, 
This is textbook dramatic irony, guys. But it was no use, and the group ignored Mushmouth's objections. It wasn't until the stranger easily broke the worst horse and threw off his wig during a victory lap, revealing that he was, indeed, Pecos Bill, that the men believed. Of course, they still ignored the I told you so's from Mushmouth. The ranchers cheered. Even Moon Hennessy, who was hoping that Gunsmith would forget about the six months' wages that he now owed because he had bet that their friend was dead. Bill rode General Stonewall Jackson back to his stall before sitting the men down and telling them the story. There he was, 400,000 feet in the air, riding a twister. Mushmouth raised his hand. It, that probably wasn't accurate. 350,000 feet up in the air was suborbital space. Also, a typical tornado was, what, like 50,000 feet tall, give or take? The room stopped dead, and Chuck turned to Mushmouth. Stop it with the snarky interjections, okay? It's a fun story about a guy riding a tornado. Let it be what it is. Mushmouth rolled his eyes. Some people like his snarky interjections, you know. As I was saying, Bill continued, there I was, 500,000 feet up in the air, and the tornado started breaking beneath me. That's when it gave up, and it started to rain. Bill detailed how he crashed to the ground, the wind having tattered his clothes leaving him in all of his beautiful, naked coyote glory. Of course, he couldn't go places looking like that, so he decided to invent chaps by sneaking up on a cow, pinching its tail, and then literally scaring it out of its skin. Bill smiled. He put on the chaps, walked 2,000 miles, mounted General Stonewall Jackson, and the rest was history. Over the next few weeks, life returned to normal on the ranch, but it was not the first time that Pecos Bill had left for a long period of time. The first time happened way back, even before the famous tornado incident, where Pecos Bill captured his horse, Widowmaker, aka Pegasus. Bill had been on his way home, and passed an area known as Hell's Gulch, where, no surprise given the name, he had run into Satan himself. Satan took one look at Widowmaker and begged Bill for a ride. Now, Bill had given Widowmaker that name for a reason. And the moment Satan mounted the horse, Widowmaker bucked, and the devil flew. Luckily, the devil was a heavyweight, and he only made it about as high as an airplane. Still, Bill was ready. At the perfect moment, Bill lassoed the devil, capturing him before he entered orbit. With a firm pull on the rope, Bill brought the devil back down to earth, hard, on a pile of jagged rocks. It hurt almost as much as the first time Satan fell to Earth, and despite their best efforts and a complete lack of medical training, no one could set Satan's bones because, quote, there weren't enough bones left to set. Still, being the charitable guy he was, Pecos Bill nursed Satan back to health himself. This was probably a bit too helpful, circling back around to being self-defeating, but that's what he did. In the end, Pecos Bill had the devil's ear for like, five months. So, by the time the devil's skeleton had grown back, he was convinced. He was going into the beef business. The plains had once been full of buffalo, and they could be full again, with cattle. Yeah, apparently Pecos Bill talked the devil into being equal partners on a joint cattle venture. If being business partners with the actual devil sounds like a terrible idea, well, it probably is, and I recommend against it. That being said, the devil was super excited and eager to get his team of demons to work on heading up the U.S. beef industry. 
it was at this point that Pecos Bill had been itching to get home. He had already been away long enough and promised Satan he'd return with enough cash to fund half of his operation. The devil thought briefly, maybe he should get back to trying to secure the eternal damnation of all humans. Tomorrow, tomorrow. He'd get back to it tomorrow. Currently, there was a beef industry to run. At this point, Pecos Bill had been gone for about eight months when he finally returned to Pinnacle Ranch with Widowmaker. So I guess he now owns two ranches, a new one with the devil and Pinnacle Ranch with his brother and the guys. As he neared old Pinnacle Ranch, Bill knew something was off. Milling around outside was a group of English gentlemen with a long line of furniture. Apparently, Pinnacle Ranch had been sold. The Englishman held out his hand, squinting with a monocle pinched by his eye. He greeted Pecos Bill with a giant grin. This ranch and their 7,500 cattle couldn't be more perfect. 7,500? Bill asked. We only have two th too many cows, Bill, Moon Hennessy said. We just have too many. That's why we're selling. Bill, a word? Moon Hennessy took Bill aside while the gentleman buyer continued directing the movers. Moon, why does that man over there think we own 7,500 head of cattle? Moon smiled. It was something of a prank that turned into a long con that turned into a massive amount of money for everyone involved, so maybe Bill should just keep his mouth shut. Basically, the British guy wanted to buy the ranch, and instead of taking the owner's word for it when it came to how much cattle they owned, as was apparently the Texas way, he wanted to count the cattle to make sure he was actually getting what he paid for. Could Bill believe it? Bill, who had just finished inking a deal with the devil, kind of could. Well, anyway, as Bill knew, their ranch was on a mountain. They actually owned the whole mountain, and it was really easy to line up the cows and just get them to walk in a circle around the mountain all day long. The buyer wanted to count the cows, didn't he? <laughs> Fine, he could count the cows. So to teach him a lesson about how much he should trust you, you conned him into paying three times more than the ranch was worth? Now they were gonna pay them 80 grand, and since this was the mid-1800s, that was like a million dollars? Moon Hennessy nodded. Yeah, and all Bill needed to do was nothing and he could walk away as one of the richest men in the country. Bill shook his head at Moon and turned to find the buyer and set everything straight when he stopped in his tracks. Wow, who was that? Her name was Sue, and she was the daughter of the older British guy buying their ranch. She was excited to be moving out west, and even more excited to find a seasoned and, dare she say, handsome cowboy to uh, show her the ropes? Bill immediately forgot what he was doing and smiled. He, he, he was, who was he again? What was his name? Sue shared that she rode a giant catfish down the Rio Grande. Not sure if that just meant she was a good swimmer or if she actually rode a giant catfish. It really could be either in the story. But either way, she had never learned to ride a horse. Bill and Sue proved to have quite the chemistry. And eventually, Bill remembered his own name enough to talk to her. One of the most intriguing women he had ever met. The two other guys couldn't get a word in edgewise, despite their efforts. To Bill and Sue, they were the only two people in the room. The night wore on, 
and the previous ranch owners danced, ate, and drank with the new ranch owners. When it was time for bed, Moon could only laugh. It was kind of a bummer that Bill and Sue hit it off so well. Moon was surprised Bill was even into women who weren't coyotes, but more importantly, he'd never be able to see Sue again after her father took possession of the ranch the following day. He'd see that there weren't three times as many cattle as he'd hoped, and he would surely be after them. Bill couldn't even say Sue's name, let alone see her, for fear that they'd be hanged if anyone found out. Moon laughed again and slapped Bill on the back, before making his way out to the tents they had set up out front. But Bill didn't follow. He stood there watching with narrowed eyes. Quickly, he found his lasso and whistled for Widowmaker. They had work to do. Bill, Bill, wake up, Moon whispered frantically, shaking Bill awake. It was time to go. It was almost laid out, and the first thing any sensible buyer would do would be to check on their investment in daylight. They needed to be as far from Old Pinnacle Ranch as possible when the time came. Bill dragged himself to Widowmaker and rode along with his guys. Looking back at the Pinnacle Mountain, they would all make good time because the guys, thinking they were fugitives, did not know that Bill had gone out that night. He worked hard and found enough cows to make their deal right. He toiled because he was an honest man, and scamming someone, no matter how oily and business-minded they were, wasn't right. He didn't want he and his brother to be fugitives from the law, either. But most importantly, he worked hard because of Slewfoot Sue, that being her nickname, and he hoped, one day, that he'd see her again. It was actually Sue that Pecos Bill was thinking about when he fell down from the sky and landed hard in the American Midwest. He talked about her that night, too, when he returned to the ranch. All the guys huddled around the fire, and Bill shared that he had an announcement to make. He and Sue were going to be married. Over the past few months, he had been making trips back to the old ranch. The last time, he had roped a bronco, tamed it, and brought it to her. As she rode, she asked, if Pecos Bill was ever going to marry, would he make his wife wear both a skirt and chaps, as Sue's mother made her wear? Bill grew serious. If she were his wife, she could wear anything she wanted. There'd be nothing he'd refuse her. Sue slowed the horse. If she were his wife, what, what was he saying? Pecos Bill clarified himself. Well, there would be nothing he would refuse her except for a ride on Widowmaker. I mean, sure, his name was Widowmaker and not Widowermaker, but that was just semantics and he would very much kill anyone that wasn't Bill or an immortal personification of evil that had to regrow a skeleton after Bill pulled him from the top of a mountain. Sue smiled softly and the pair resumed chatting. The prospect of marriage excited her, though she pressed again about the Widowmaker thing. Bill suggested that she just sit tight and wait for his return. They keep talking about it then. Of course, Bill didn't think that it would be nearly a year until he was able to come back. And falling from orbit without a parachute, well, it made you think about the important things in life, like who you wanted to spend what time you had left with. Bill knew who he wanted to be with. Sue. That's why he was announcing their wedding to his friends. You know, pending her acceptance of the proposal. He'd hoped she'd say yes because, on his way back, he'd sent for a minister out east and that minister was due to be at Pinnacle Mountain the following morning. All Bill's friends stood shocked 
before Chuck broke the silence. So, this wasn't a coming home party. This was a bachelor party! The celebration commenced with firing guns in the air, eating massive steaks, cake and juice, I don't know. All the things a good bachelor party would include in a 1930s children's book set in the Old West. All were quiet on their ride the next day, however, the jubilation having lurched in their throat like a sob. Because apparently it's always necessary to mourn your friend's happiness at finding someone they wanted to spend the rest of their life with, the men lamented the entire way that this would change things between them. There ain't no room for a skirt around their ranch, they said. Pecos Bill's gone loco. Mary Bill will be worth as much as a flop-eared maverick. You know, all the normal jabs you'd expect. That being said, no amount of tropey views on marriage or folksy pseudo-insults had any effect on Pecos Bill. He spurred Widowmaker on and rode ahead of the group, on to Pinnacle Ranch. By the time they arrived at their old ranch, Bill had just returned, again, from a leisurely ride with his betrothed. Together, they talked about the future, and Bill began to feel something. It was a feeling he knew well from his time with the Coyotes, the one he had felt when he was in the presence of his brother. Family. He and Sue would be a family together. This was what he had been seeking his entire life, and only now did he realize it. And Pecos Bill married Slewfoot Sue. They walked down the aisle to Mushmouth's harmonica serenade, and, afterward, arrived at the reception that Sue's parents had put together. It was a prim and proper deal with an orchestra, a bunch of people in tuxedos and formal nightgowns. It was so nice that, even though Bill was comfortable, the other cowboys were not. They were clearly underdressed and overthinking every interaction, until they heard the whooping. While Bill was dancing with the mother of the bride, he was raised by coyotes after all, Slewfoot Sue gripped her wedding dress and she tore the fabric apart. And underneath, she was wearing cowboy clothes. With a hoot and a howl, she screamed, a cowboy bride for the greatest cowboy of all time, and started dancing. Bill's buddies lit up and immediately joined in. After a lot of hooting and howling, Moon Hennessy slapped Bill on the back. He had found a great wife after all. Bill smiled. He knew all along, but he was glad that they could see it now too. Wait, where was Sue? Moon looked around too. He had no idea where she'd gone during all the dancing. Bill's glance darted around the dance floor, between tables, and that's when he turned to the stables. Oh no. Moon caught Sue's mother as, mid-dip, Bill let go of her and booked it to the barn, to Widowmaker's stable. His horses panicked when he reached him, before he'd even set foot in the door. His worst fears were confirmed. Sue was going to try to ride Widowmaker. As if in slow motion, the entire wedding party turned at the crash of boards and steel flying from the stable roof. Widowmaker had bucked Sue, and she was airborne. She was also considerably lighter than Satan, because, while he only made it up to cruising altitude, Sue had to lower her head as she soared past the moon. Bill winced, watching helplessly as she reached the pinnacle of her flight and began her descent. He knew this was it. His wife was going to die, because, unlike the devil, she couldn't grow back her skeleton. He couldn't watch. But then, he heard a cheer. Sue had been wearing her cowboy clothes underneath her dress, and she was able to get everything off but her metal bustle, that metal frame filling out her big dress. She had been wearing it when she danced, 
and she had been wearing it when she hopped on Widowmaker. And it's because she was wearing it that, when she hit the ground, she bounced. Miraculously, Sue lived. Bill's smile quickly faded. Sue was bouncing, which meant that she was alive, but it complicated things. He couldn't lasso her. She was moving too fast. It would cut her in half. He also couldn't catch her, or else it would nullify the effects of the metal and kill them both. Though the men cheered, Sue wasn't laughing. She was terrified and in unspeakable pain, being whipped against the ground every time she bounced. Around bounce 11 or 12, so about a day later, Bill was able to loop a rope containing some meat around her neck, and she managed to eat. Mushmouth did the math, and Moon confirmed it. She wouldn't stop. Because of entropy and friction and a whole host of things Mushmouth didn't want to explain to a guy who thought he was a coyote, Sue's bounces would get smaller and smaller, eventually stopping. But they weren't moving fast enough. At the rate she moved, she could bounce for a year across the plains of Texas. Maybe two. And that was the best case scenario. Bill refused to hear it. He would work out a solution. He always worked out a solution. Except that this time, he didn't. He stayed with her for three days. After all the men but Chuck went back to the ranch. He was timing the bounces with a pocket watch. Mushmouth was right. They were changing, but not quickly enough. Sue was now sobbing constantly, begging her new husband Bill to stop her. Please, even if it meant killing her, he needed to stop her. She couldn't live like this. Chuck sat Bill down as Sue exited the atmosphere and made her way toward the moon for the 30th time. They both knew what needed to be done. Chuck looked at his brother. Maybe Bill should take a walk. Chuck took his gun from his holster. He could do it. Bill put his hand on his brother's gun, lowering it back to his belt. No. It had to be Bill. It could only be Bill. Bill was the only one who was a good enough shot. If they missed, if they clipped her but didn't kill her, then she would be in even more agony than she already was. No. It had to be him. Outside the barn, Bill commanded his hand not to shake. The next bounce. He would do it on the next bounce. As Sue re-entered the atmosphere, when she was near enough to see, she spotted the gun in Bill's hand. Through tears, she nodded, mouthed with all the strength she had left that she loved Bill, and took a deep breath. Bill didn't cry as the shot rang out across the desert. He didn't cry when the woman he loved, shot through the chest and thrown backwards, didn't land on the metal bustle, but skidded to a stop on the dirt. He didn't cry as he ran to her, scooping up her battered form from the earth. The promise of their life together, of happiness in a family, dying with her. He held her close, for the first time as man and wife, and he said goodbye. legends grew about Pecos Bill after that day. It said that he took some time, and, in the light of progress making its way west, he gave spikes to the cactuses and horns to the toad. It said that, when he did finally cry about Sue, somewhere far from Texas, 
he filled up a lake so full with his own tears that it still flows to this day. When he returned, he was different. Then again, so was the land. What had once been a wild and free Texas was now hemmed in by barbed wire and no trespassing signs. Progress had caught up with the West, and Bill knew that he had no place there anymore. He got back in contact with his business partner, Satan, and persuaded him to sell. Together, Bill, Chuck, Mushmouth, Gunsmith, Moon Hennessy, and others would drive their cattle to Kansas and sell. He wasn't sure the U.S. Treasury itself possessed enough money to buy all the cattle, but their time was coming to an end, and they knew it. This would be their last ride. So they drove the cattle north and east. They slept on the trail, and in some way it was like the good old days, but on some level they all knew. It remained hidden beneath the surface until, just a day out from Kansas City, Bill made an announcement to the group. He wouldn't be going back with them. Chuck didn't protest. He knew his brother. But the others, even Moon Hennessy, begged him to stay. It was all in vain. Bill insisted that he couldn't. The world of barbed wire and houses and property that was overtaking the country might work for them, but he wasn't like them. He was a man, he knew that now, but he was a coyote at heart. Pecos Bill was grateful to have lived among them. At its best, no species was better than humans. They could be kind, altruistic, and loving. At its worst, no species was worse than humans. With its selfishness, arrogance, and cruelty, Pecos Bill was honored to have lived among men who showed him what it meant to typify the best of their species and encouraged him to be his best. He would never forget them. After he left town, the men argued about what happened. None of them ever saw Pecos Bill again. Moon Hennessy maintains that he went back to the Coyotes, but without the protection of Grandy, and after Bill actively aided the humans in their westward expansion, Moon asserted that they turned on him, and he and Widowmaker's bones were bleaching in the sun somewhere for them to find, if they only knew where to look. Gunsmith and Mushmouth had another idea. They thought Bill ventured west, that he found a box canyon with an entrance only he could negotiate, with a verdant valley inside, with sparkling springs and wild cattle. To everyone else, it just looked like a simple mountain, but to Bill, it was a paradise. And Sue was there with him. Moon Hennessy pursed his lips. I mean, that's where Mushmouth was wrong. Sue was dead. Was she? Mushmouth posed before Moon. Did Moon go to her funeral? Moon shook his head. He couldn't bring himself to. Mushmouth nodded. Well, then Moon probably never went back to Pinnacle Ranch. Not like Mushmouth did. He went back looking for Bill, sure that he must visit Sue's grave eventually. The thing that Mushmouth found when he got there, though, Sue's grave didn't exist. After Bill carried her body back to her parents and left, they realized that she was still clinging to life. She survived the gunshot to the chest. Her parents had healed her, and she was gone. Her father said that when she was well enough to ride again, she left the following morning saying that there was someone she had to meet. Mushmouth looked out on the horizon, and he knew. 
He knew that, somewhere out there, Bill and Sue were living in their own personal Eden, far away from the world. They needed no company but each other, and there are apparently dozens of children. Bill and Sue would be together forever, happy and free. Ghost Bill continues, saying that wherever cowboys are gathered, there will always be one more, a mysterious stranger in the back, who comes to bask in the tradition that he had helped create. I should say that when it comes to Slewfoot Sue, there are a couple of different versions. In one, she's not executed, but friction does its work to slow her bouncing faster than in this one. But in the end, she doesn't want to see another horse or cowboy ever again and leaves Bill for England only to return later. There's also a version where she flat out dies from a gunshot wound, but I want to combine the version where she's shot with the version where she leaves and then returns, mainly because I like that particular narrative tension better, and it makes more sense to me than her divorcing Bill for something that really wasn't his fault, and then inexplicably coming back to live with him in this wild, free land. I want to say thanks to Eliza Bean, XX Miss Devlin X, TV Lou 31, People's Frank, String Cheesiest, Frankie Mankey, NC Merritt, AB Fan 123, McFizari, The Legend 2487, Ouroboros 313, Jen George 77, WPger 3, Dasa D, and Buck Buck Bork for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for the review and for taking the time. It's great to hear from you. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is Mama Delo, from the folklore of Trinidad and Tobago. Her name is roughly from a French name, which means mother of the river, and she loves, protects, and heals all river animals, except if those animals happen to be human men, in which case she just loves them and leaves off the protecting and the healing parts. Mama Delo, from the waist up, is a beautiful woman with long, golden hair. From the waist down, she's a powerful serpent. The beautiful woman half of the creature will lure men into the pool, while the snake does the rest of the work. If you're wondering what the rest of the work means, well, say hello to the team. There, under the water, constantly drowning and constantly being brought back to life are the other men that have been lured into the water. All of them, down to the first, are trapped down there. The new guy will quickly discover that drowning constantly is perhaps the most preferable way to go because Mama Delo will, uh, use the men for her own pleasure. And when she's done with them, she'll wrap up their bodies and crush them tossing them to the bottom of the river like a crumpled up piece of paper. She'll bring them back to life, where they'll painfully heal. Sometimes Mama Delo comes after men. If you find yourself in that situation, take off your left shoe and place it upside down on the path. And, walking backwards, get out of the woods. Maybe that's some magical trick, or maybe Mama Delo is just so confused that you're offering her your sweaty shoe that she doesn't come after you until it's too late. Some quick advice here. If you're walking through the forest and someone beckons you into the river for a good time, maybe don't follow them. Coming from writing about nearly 200 creatures on this podcast, it almost never works out. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. 
There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. 